Hello everyone, my name is uh, Yus Yusuf. Uh, I'm from Leeds. Uh, I'm reporting for Room Now uh, for EULA 2023 live from Milan. Uh, today is uh, day three uh, of the Congress uh, and uh, one uh, abstract that I would like to highlight today uh, is pertaining uh, to ancestry. Uh, so uh, the uh, number is uh, OP0290. Uh, as we all know, uh, systemic lupus erythematosus or SLE is uh, such a heterogeneous disease, and not only on, in terms of disease pathogenesis and disease features, but also response to therapy. So when we are talking about response to therapy, um, one key um, uh, important uh, message from like this uh, uh, work uh, was to think about uh, ancestry. Um, so this uh, uh, is a study um, uh, which uh, the investigators uh, analyzed a very large cohort of uh, nearly 1,500 patients uh, of uh, lupus patients uh, using the uh, BIOLAG uh, BR registry in the United Kingdom. Uh, so these patients uh, have had a therapy uh, with uh, standard of care uh, as a control, but they also uh, have refractive disease uh, and uh, were, were treated with rituximab or, or belimumab. Uh, in this uh, study, uh, uh, around 60% uh, uh, were of uh, Caucasians uh, or European ancestry uh, and uh, about um, 16% uh, were of a black uh, uh, in uh, origin. Uh, we also got around 14% South Asian and the remaining uh, constitute uh, Southeast Asian uh, and uh, mixed race. Um, so uh, in this study, um, the purpose uh, is to analyze uh, whether uh, was there any impact on ethnicity uh, towards uh, clinical outcomes of patients treated on uh, these uh, three uh, therapies. Um, so uh, uh, what uh, they found uh, in this uh, study uh, were ethnicity, uh, you know, uh, were associated with poorer response, uh, particularly uh, people of uh, 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 black color. Um, so uh, they um, uh, have uh, a reduction uh, in uh, major clinical response, which was defined by uh, SLIDI uh, scoring four points or less uh, by about uh, 55 to 60 percent um, in both uh, rituximab and belimumab. Uh, uh, and also, um, uh, they, were all, they also had a um, reduced um, uh, effect uh, in terms of uh, conventional immunosuppressant as well. Uh, and another uh, 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 ancestry that also affected uh, was uh, South Asian, uh, where um, the, there was a reduction uh, in terms of um, uh, effectiveness of our treatment to about 71% uh, in belumab and also 35% in rituximab. Um, so this study um, highlighted uh, the importance uh, to uh, uh, acknowledge uh, ethnicity uh, as uh, a stratification uh, factor, uh, uh, also uh, as a prognostic uh, factor when we're trying to treat uh, the patients with uh, biological therapies. Um, this uh, could be uh, uh, explained various reasons. Uh, and one of our uh, study in Leeds, uh, which we published last year, um, we uh, did look uh, at uh, 
patients treated with uh, rituximab, and we studied the uh, interferon uh, uh, gene signature uh, in bloods. Uh, and what we found, uh, at the times we categorized, because of the small sample size, we categorized between um, uh, uh, European and non-European ancestry. Uh, we found that in terms of the gene expression uh, uh, score, um, there was uh, some, uh, head, uh, we can group it into three clusters, uh, and there's one clusters um, uh, that actually predicted poor response, which corresponded to uh, interferon low and neutrophil high group. So potentially this could be one of the explanation uh, why there was poor uh, response uh, in the non-ancestry uh, 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 descent. So uh, I hope you find it uh, useful uh, and uh, follow me on my uh, Twitter at u6yusuf. Uh, and uh, follow uh, Room Now uh, either at uh, Twitter, uh, YouTube, or LinkedIn for more uh, uh, con uh, coverage uh, at this year's uh, EULA. Thank you. Ciao. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Yus Yusuf. Uh, I'm from Leeds and I'm reporting for Room Now uh, at EULA 2023 live from Milan, Italy. Uh, today is uh, day three of the Congress. Uh, and there have been so many interesting uh, abstract and posters uh, presented at the conference. Uh, and today, uh, I'm uh, delighted uh, to be joined uh, by Dr. Yanis uh, Paradis uh, from Karolinska Institute. Uh, hi, Yanis. Hello, Yus. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, uh, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Uh, it's pleasure in the forest as well. Um, so today uh, we would like to uh, give a quick summary of uh, Dr. Paradis' uh, work. Uh, the, uh, the poster is uh, 1156, uh, and today we'll be discussing about uh, de novo renal flares uh, during uh, belimumab randomized control trials. Um, so Yanis, uh, would you like to just uh, give us a brief summary, the background and the objectives of your study? Yes, absolutely. So we designed this study uh, because uh, we had some signals uh, from uh, real-world uh, uh, experience with Belimab. So some years ago, we published uh, uh, some uh, cases of the novel lupus nephritis during treatment with Belimab. So these were patients that did not have renal involvement before they started treatment uh, with Belimab and uh, developed uh, a biopsy-proven lupus nephritis during therapy. And uh, since we felt that uh, um, the cases were, let's say, um, more uh, than what we could expect, uh, we started uh, investigating this a little bit more in depth. So we even um, matched uh, the population of belimab-treated patients with the population of patients who had received other medications and were followed for uh, uh, quite some time. And uh, we could see that patients who had received belimab developed the novel lupus nephritis to a greater extent. So this brought our attention a bit and we thought, okay, maybe we should uh, look into this in uh, a clinical data, uh, clinical trial data to where we have uh, um, a placebo arm, the patients are randomized. So there we have uh, better, uh, let's say, um, uh, opportunities to look uh, into protection uh, or predisposition conferred from Limab uh, in, with regards to developing 
development of the novo uh, renal flare. So this is what we did. And uh, we designed a post-hoc analysis of data uh, from five phase three randomized clinical trials of Belimab. These were the BLIS 52 uh, trial, the BLIS 76 clinical trial, the BLIS Northeast Asia, uh, the BLIS subcutaneous and the EMBRACE. So Belimab in black race patients. And uh, the total number of patients who participated in these trials, uh, th this was more than 3,600 patients. And uh, the patients who never had renal involvement until the baseline uh, of the trials, uh, um, th this was 1,844 patients. And from these patients, it was 136 patients who actually developed uh, uh, the novel renal flare. And this was defined as a transition from uh, BILAG E to BILAG A or B in the renal domain of the classic BILAG within uh, the 52-week uh, follow-up of the trial. So this, this was pretty much um, the, the design of the study and the, the rationale why we did this. Okay, and uh, I think you touched just now um, about uh, your some of your you know sort of uh, key findings. So you mentioned there are uh, about just over hundred patients, so about eight percent um, developed a uh, you know, de novo uh, uh, renal flares. Um, so in terms of uh, um, like predictors, uh, do, do do you see any sort of predictors of this renal flare when you analyze it? Yes, absolutely. So it's nice that uh, you're bringing up uh, the percentage because it was actually pretty similar to what uh, we reported a couple of years ago when we looked at real world uh, data coming from Sweden and uh, from UK uh, together uh, from Leeds actually. Uh, so um, it was striking first to see that uh, there was a clear separation between uh, belimumab, the intravenous uh, belimumab, one milligram per kilogram, so the low-dose intravenous belimumab, uh, and uh, the uh, placebo group, the respective placebo group. So we actually did a crude analysis to begin with, uh, taking the placebo groups from their respective trials in order to uh, make sure that we had a representative placebo group uh, for its comparison. So we could see a protective effect of the intravenous lotus bulimab against renal flares. We could not see this protective effect uh, from uh, the high-dose intravenous bilimab. We could not see the same protective effect uh, with the subcutaneous um, uh, bilimab. And this was the crude analysis. Then to take time uh, to event um, or to take time uh, to event into account, we we did COX aggression analysis, first uh, univariable and then uh, uh, multivariable coxigration analysis, and uh, there we could confirm that uh, the low dose bilimab was uh, the bilimab dose that gave uh, uh, the greatest protection against development of the novo renal flares. In that analysis, actually, uh, we even saw a protective effect uh, conferred from the subcutaneous uh, form of uh, bilimab, but there was no uh, protection, not, not, not clear protection at least, conferred from uh, the high-dose intravenous bilimab. However, there was no predisposition either. Uh, and when it comes to other, let's say, factors associated with uh, 
uh, renal flares, we could, I mean, it was a bit surprising to see that male sex was uh, coupled with uh, um, uh, fewer events, so a protection, let's say, but the Asian population and the indigenous American population, these patients were more predisposed to develop uh, the novo renal flares. Then anti-DSDNA positivity at baseline was a factor that was uh, associated with development of renal flares. Then anti-cardiolipin antibodies, both uh, the IgG and the IgA isotype, uh, these were uh, also uh, shown to predispose. Then prednisone, uh, dose, uh, increasing prednisone dose, so as a continuous variable, was also shown to predispose and also the use of mycophenolithmophetil or oral cyclophosphamide. Uh, some few patients in these trials used actually oral cyclophosphamide and also the use of leflunomide. And mm. I see these drugs uh, and also the increasing dose of uh, oral prednisone as uh, proxies uh, of uh, uh, disease uh, severity. Uh, and uh, on the other side of the coin, methotrexate, use of methotrexate was associated uh, uh, with a lower risk of uh, uh, renal flare development. So this was the summary, let's say, of the results. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Brilliant summary. Um, so in terms of uh, implication uh, to uh, clinical practice per se, so in these, uh, you know, patient with SLE with non-renal, you know, uh, active disease, um, what, 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 what is your advice and what should we, we you know, we're looking out for your recommendation? So it is difficult to say. Uh, we, we could con corroborate, let's say, the vulnerability of the Asian SLE population to renal affliction with this study. We could clearly see a, a protective effect of the low-dose intravenous bulimumab against the development of the noborenal flares. We could not see a clear protection. We could not see any predisposition from the approved uh, intravenous bulimumab dose, that is 10 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, we could also see protective signals uh, with the subcutaneous dose. Now, how to explain that? Uh, we all know that uh, the high dose uh, or the approved dose of intravenous bulimab uh, is now a, a drug that uh, we use to treat active lupus nephritis. Uh, uh, so the message could be confusing. However, um, we have seen, for example, when we looked at uh, the cytokine profile of uh, patients treated with bulimab uh, uh, in Sweden, we saw a quick, very quick and prominent decrease of uh, IL-10. This was even more prominent and quicker than IL-6. Uh, we speculate that uh, uh, bilimumab, based on the dose, could have differential effects on uh, different subsets of bases, maybe bases that have acquired uh, regulatory properties, uh, maybe during an active phase of the disease uh, are more affected uh, by the high dose of bilimab, the low dose of bilimab maybe do not affect this uh, B-cell uh, populations the same way. Um, yeah, so this, this is how I would summarize uh, uh, the implications. Uh, then 
we shouldn't forget that in the Bliss and Land trial, for example, that resulted in the approval of uh, uh, the high dose or yeah, the 10 milligram per kilogram uh, dose of intravenous bulimum, these patients had high grade proteinuria. So mm. one could expect in these patients um, a high drug clearance in urinary losses. Uh, mm. So maybe the actual um, um, biologically active dose of bulimum is not uh, 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 yeah, as high uh, when the disease is active uh, and gives a lot of proteinuria. So, but these are all speculations. It is, of course, important to uh, uh, to really uh, perform experiments and to look at yes. the differential effects of uh, different doses of bilimab uh, on B-cells. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Yanis, uh, for a great uh, summary uh, and discussion uh, about, uh, uh, you know, uh, your work. Um, so I appreciate your time. Uh, so uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, so you can follow me through my uh, Twitter handle, Yusuf, uh, and follow uh, Room Now, uh, either through Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, for more content uh, of uh, EULA coverage. Bye-bye, everyone. So I'm Professor Peter Nash from beautiful downtown Brisbane, Griffith University, here at Room Now in Eula 2023 Milan, really reporting about the hottest topic at the meeting is CAR-T therapy in connective tissue diseases. So this was presented initially by Georg Shett, the first seven patients at the ACR meeting, and a number of presentations at this meeting are about CAR-T therapy, and not just in lupus, now it's antisynthetase syndrome, that's uh, uh, Joe-1 positive myositis. There's been a letter to the editor about uh, scleroderma, and they've now treated four patients with scleroderma. But the report about the follow-up on the patients with lupus, those seven patients that have led to the interest in this particular form of therapy, uh, they've now got patients who were very severe young patients with lupus, they had at least four organs involved. Some of them had failed a median of seven therapies and one of them 15 different therapies. I didn't even know there was 15 therapies that you could use for lupus. And these patients got into remission very quickly, whether it's Doris remission or LL-DAS remission. Their autoantibodies disappeared and they have stayed disease-free, drug-free for over a year and one patient is out to 22 months, disease-free, drug-free. And the patients are um, similarly the ones with myositis in remission, having failed multiple treatments. And the way the regimen works, they withdraw all their prior therapy, particularly T-cell therapy, three weeks before they receive the CD19 CAR-T therapy. They keep prednisone, try and eliminate if they can, or uh, adrenal cover if they can't, and then they get the infusion of autologous CAR-T cells that bear the CD19 receptor. Now, people always want to know, do you need the conditioning that these patients get in the lymphoma world with fludarabine and cyclophosphamide? And the answer is yes, because you need to deplete the niches so the CAR T cells can multiply and expand into these niches and have deep tissue elimination of B cells. The fascinating thing is one of the patients did just as well with half the conditioning regimen that the others received. 
So one of the unknown questions is just how much conditioning these people need. But fortunately, they don't seem to get too much of an issue with the conditioning. It's not that toxic. Then they get this uh, infusion of their autologous cells. One of the reports at this meeting is talking about allogenic CAR T cells being produced. But in these particular studies, they're all autologous and these patients did very well. The B cells came back and they came back as naive B cells uh, without memory B cells. They were able to preserve their antibody production in other areas because plasma cells are not eliminated with this therapy. And they apparently the safety was quite excellent. They had very uncommon um, cytokine release syndrome. Only one patient in grade one needed some tocilizumab, and they have not seen neurotoxicity, the so-called ICANs, uh, in this SLE group. They had one case of dizziness. They gave dexamethasone and called it a possible ICANs in the uh, synthetase study. So overall, fascinating results, reproduced in other areas, an expensive therapy, but uh, we're trying to get a study started up in Australia. They can do it now in Australia, make the CAR T cells for $75,000. And what if this is a cure of lupus? What if it's a cure of these pathogenic antibody-driven diseases? So it's very much a watch this space, but fascinating results and fascinating research. Thanks very much. I uh, hope you enjoy the meeting and we'll talk again. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a At Room Now reporter at ULAR 2023 in beautiful Milan. I want to talk more in a, about an opinion of data than giving you the whole uh, data set. So I've called this title provocatively, we should put the cart before the T in SLE. And uh, last year, when the CAR-T data in lupus were presented, I was skeptical because I thought, I don't know how um, well this is tolerated. I don't know if there's sustained benefit. I don't know if the patients have to go back on their drugs or not. There is a lot of buzz at this meeting about CAR-T therapy and systemic lupus and some other autoimmune diseases. So what we know differently than the original New England Journal by George Shett and his group, what we know differently now is that that there's another year of follow-up of the lupus patients who were recalcitrant to many drugs. We also know some other lupus patients have been added to his case series. We know that it, there's been um, CAR-T tried at the same site, uh, looking in um, inflammatory myositis and in systemic sclerosis. So at this point in time, my enthusiasm is high because it seems like I have a, a more of an understanding that most of these patients with autoimmune diseases don't get a cytokine storm. It's very rare and can be usually managed by a drug like tocilizumab. It's far more common when people have leukemia or lymphoma with huge tumor bulk and lysis of cells. What we also know is that um, obviously there's priming, it's expensive, it's um, getting antibodies against um, the actual antigens of the patients, so to speak. So it's very um, individualized therapy. But what we know is that um, you need to really totally, where possible, deplete circulating CD20. So the B cells that are CD20 marked then what you do, the CAR-T is infused. You're only using a bit of it. So you have some left for later if there's a recurrence. So it's infused in the patient. By around day seven, they start going up on their CD20 cells. They start making baby B cells. And what's really cool is they seem to be naive. 
So this therapy is eliminating the, um, not the plasma cells, but the plasma blast. So they start seroconverting their ANA, their DNA, their Rho, Law, Smith seem to go away over time. And that takes time. There's a half-life to the antibodies, but it seems that it's not really making the plasma cells non-intact. What do I mean by that? They still seem to have their immunity against measles, mumps, rubella, viruses, other, other uh, things that we were vaccinated against or um, infections that we've had, um, and especially in our childhood. They seem to be long-lived. What we found out at this meeting um, from uh, his site, as well as some other CAR-T data that were presented, was that these patients are now seemingly staying in drug-free remission. Only one of the seven lupus patients that were reported had a recurrence, and uh, they were able to give the CAR-T cells that are basically frozen and available on the patient, and they did well again. Um, It seems that their quality of life is far better, that they're not even on hydroxychloroquine. All immune suppression is stopped. So what is my take home? My take home is that I think this is actually a therapy that is transformational. I think it's obviously not for every patient. I think it would be at this point in time, patients who are severe or serious symptoms or smoldering on an awful lot of immune suppression and have not fully responded or gone into remission, such as renal lupus, and they're still on high dose glucocorticoids to try to keep them well. I think later, maybe this will be used in early line therapy. But many of the patients that were um, treated with CAR-T basically had um, not fully responded to um, mycophenolate, mofetil, um, cyclophosphamide, uh, biologicals, et cetera. So to me, I think this holds promise. I think we're going to need proper RCTs. But right now, I think I'm getting closer to putting the CART before the T and having CAR-T therapy as an option for patients down the road and giving all our patients hope after proper studies are done. Please follow us at room now. Thank you. Hi, this is Bella Mehta. I'm from New York, but right now in you, uh, in Milan, uh, reporting for Room Now. And um, one of the oral presentations today, looking at lupus mortality rates over the past few decades, was very interesting. And I thought I'd talk about it. Uh, this is uh, data from the Spanish wrestler cohort, looking at, uh, looking at around 3,600 patients, mainly Caucasian females with lupus. Um, the abstract number is uh 0p um 20 sorry the abstract number uh, is uh, op0229 um this is where um patients from the wrestler cohort are described it's a pretty comprehensive list of uh, variables that they collect including disease activities so severity medications and socio demographics um and they compared patients who died with those who survived at different time stages so uh, they looked at patients before 1980s then in the 1990s and then in the first decade of the 21st century um and what they found was um something that we know that lupus mortality over time has decreased so it was 18% before 1980s which is pretty high uh, it was it dropped to nine, around 6% in the 1990s and then around 3% in the early 2000s uh, I think the key points to take away is that over time, mortality has decreased in these patients. However, what I found most interesting was that the reasons for mortality that they described uh, have changed over time. So vascular events, for example, were the leading cause of death in the 1980s for lupus patients. But in the past two decades, it's mainly been infections, um, which is the main cause of death. Now, is this because of more 
uh, immunosuppressive medications or some other um, things is is something that we need to infer from. But um, I, I think it, it, there's a significant shift. Um, also, the mortality predictors varied across the decades. So until the 1980s, hypocomplementemia and organ damage were the biggest predictors of mortality. Uh, in the 1990s, thrombocytopenia, antiphospholipid syndrome, and valve disease have been uh, implicated uh, for predictors of mortality. But in the in the near in the last uh, two decades or so, it's mainly cirrhositis, uh, organ damage, and a big one is depression. Um, and again, uh, these are things that are not talked about that much in lupus. But um, you know, depression in lupus is directly linked to mortality here. Um, you know, some of the other things that they found was that skin involvement was associated with be better survival in the recent decades. Um, also, anti-malarian treatment overall was associated with improved survival in all of the decades that uh, they analyzed. Um, so I think in summary, it, it's a very comprehensive study that they presented, which shows the shift in the cause of death in lupus patients. This is a Spain study, but I think some of these things maybe um, uh, can be projected even in other countries. Uh, and infection has been the most uh, the most important cause of death uh, in lupus patients. Um, you know, and and depression, uh, which I think is one of the big ones that they talk about um, is directly linked to mortality. So it needs to be addressed in our lupus patients. Uh, with that, uh, I think there's a lot more uh, interesting abstracts at ULAR that we do, we'd report. Um, and follow me more uh, for more uh, content at, on my Twitter handle, Bella underscore Meta. Um, and, and here's me signing off from uh, room now. Bye. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Janet Pope here. I'm a room reporter from At Room Now, and I'm here in Milan at ULAR 2023. And if there's background noise, it's because there's a lot of buzz going on today. So I wanted to talk about jack inhibitors, but in an area where you're not thinking as much about them and they are going to become possible blockbusters. So I'm going to talk about really um, jack, upadacidinib, I'm going to talk about baricidinib that we thought already after the negative phase three trial had sort of um, uh, been put to sleep, but maybe it's woken up again. And I'm going to talk a little bit about TIC2. Um, so the first thing, upadacidinib, 15 milligrams a day, an active non-renal lupus was uh, in an RCT, the SLE-EK trial. It was randomized to uh, UPA, uh, a jack plus a BTK, which gave no added value than the UPA alone or a placebo. And the bottom line is upadacidinib is now in phase three trials because the outcome measurements were positive. What they are telling us about here is um, basically POS, a poster 1133, is really looking at the fact that when the patients are in the study with active disease, there is an interferon type 1 signature, a serum signature, and that that will be down-regulated. Is that because of two reasons? Because when we control lupus, interferon goes down the way it could with glucocorticoids or anything, or is it a downstream because of the JAK-STAT signaling? I'm asking the question. I don't really know the answer, but good to know. Also, we know that Ducravacidinib in the Paisley trial is positive. We already know that. It's been reported. So that's looking at Ducravacidinib versus placebo added to standard of care in non-renal lupus. What 
we do know now is that they are also in phase three and they also looked at um, interferon production in the patients and found it was upregulated, especially in the younger, highly active, lots of antibody patients and that it was down-regulated. So interferon is really important, not just in drugs that dampen interferon directly. The final thing that I think is actually important, and it's going to give me pause to think, is that there was a single-site study, it was out of Turkey, oral presentation 0053, and it was a randomized controlled trial, I would assume registered a long time ago when the phase two and three trials were going on for baricidinib, but they're ready to report and are reporting at this meeting, baricidinib four milligrams a day versus cyclophosphamide and active renal lupus nephritis. And what did it do? It helped renal nephritis and both groups as it should, but surprisingly they were about equal, but it also was helping the other features of lupus that uh, cyclophosphamide isn't as good at. So what have we got here? We have a package of a couple jacks and a tick two that might really revolutionize lupus for some patients where maybe if these things pan out more, we'll have oral options available for our patients. So please follow us at Room Now and enjoy yourself. Thank you. Hi everyone. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And Jack has asked me to report for Room Now from EULA 2023 Milan about what's the latest in Jack and TIC2 inhibitors. And uh, the one of the abstracts I've selected is OP0139, which is looking at the efficacy and safety of a selective BDK inhibitor called Elsabrutinib combined with or separate to upadacitinib in two doses in the management of lupus. Jack inhibition in lupus has become very topical. We know ducravacitinib, the TIC2 inhibitor, showed efficacy and is moving forward in phase three studies. We're doing those. And baricitinib didn't, mainly due to very high placebo response, which gave it no chance of showing efficacy, even though it had almost identical SRI4 response to ducravacitinib, which had a very low and normal kind of placebo response, allowing it to show significance. Anyway, this particular study looked at, it was a phase two double-blind placebo-controlled randomized study, and they had 340 patients, 41 patients, a decent number. They looked at the BDK inhibitor by itself. They looked at 30 milligrams of upadacitinib by itself. They looked at placebo on background of standard of care for everybody, anti-malarials, low-dose prednisone, immunosuppressives, et cetera, but patients were still having active disease. And then they compared that to the BDK inhibitor plus 15 milligrams of UPA, so-called low-dose, and Ellsbrutinib with the 30 milligrams of UPA to Sidinib, if you like, the higher dose. And the primary endpoint at week 24, which to me is a little early in lupus studies for the reasons that the pathogenic antibody can last months, and really it's the second 24 weeks that's important in these studies. Um, and they looked at, 20, at SRI4 plus prednisone, 10 milligrams or less. They didn't mandate that it should go down to a low dose like 5 milligrams, which is one way of making sure the placebo response is not over the top. Uh, and they were able to show a number of things in this study. Firstly, the BDK inhibitor by itself was not effective. The lower dose of upadacitinib was not effective. And importantly, whether it was SRI4, Bicla, LL-DAS, or the combined SRI4 plus prednisone dose, 
There was no added benefit to adding the BDK inhibitor to the upadacitinib. This study actually compared high-dose combo versus um, UPA by itself versus placebo. And um, no benefit in adding the extra drug, but did show some nice efficacy of upadacitinib in lupus, particularly the classy index, a good response for uh, skin as well as for joints. So for you and I that have to treat not a lot of renal lupus nephritis because the uh, nephrologists have stolen those in our part of the world, not in cerebral lupus, but the kind of typical lupus you and I have to see, which is skin and joints and maybe some pleuropericarditis, mucocutaneous ulceration. Upidacidinib 30 milligrams showed nice efficacy in those domains. There wasn't an issue of venous thromboembolism, smallish numbers, short-term, can't really comment on safety. They need uh, longer-term open-label safety to give us uh, all the details. But certainly another jack, which is showing efficacy in lupus, but you have to use the higher dose. That's more zoster, more risk of opportunist infection, more issues possibly with VTE, MACE, et cetera, that needs to be sorted out, although not showing up in the rheumatoid long-term comparative clinical trials at this stage. So thank you for your attention. This question of Jackson lupus looks very interesting and we look forward to developments in the future. Thanks for your time. Hello, everyone. My name is Yus Yusuf. I'm from Leeds. Uh, I'm reporting for Room Now uh, live from Milan for EULA 2023 Congress. Uh, today is uh, day two uh, of a conference. Uh, there have been so many interesting uh, abstracts presented, uh, and I'm here to highlight uh, uh, one that uh, I find it interesting. Um, today, uh, this is in the new therapy uh, section. Uh, I would like to discuss uh, the abstract number um, OP0139. Uh, so this is uh, a promising uh, new therapy in uh, SLE. Uh, this is a phase two uh, randomized control trial uh, of um, a compound called ABBV599 high dose, uh, which is actually a combination of a BTK inhibitor called alsobrutinib uh, and uh, upadacitinib, uh, which is a JAK1 inhibitor, uh, comparing uh, these compound uh, to upadacitinib alone uh, and also placebo. Um, this is in non-renal SLE. Uh, in this uh, phase two trial, um, the primary endpoint uh, was um, meeting uh, SRI for response uh, as, as, as well as a reduction uh, in uh, oral prednisolone uh, less or equals uh, to 10 milligram per day. Um, so in terms of uh, the results, uh, the uh, primary uh, endpoint uh, was met uh, in both uh, the ABBV599HD compound as well as uh, upadacitinib alone compared to placebo. Uh, and in terms of uh, the safety aspects, uh, so there were no major concerns. Uh, and in particular, uh, there were no um, malignancy cases or cases of venous uh, thromboembolism uh, in this uh, in a study with a short-term follow-up. Therefore, um, what does this uh, study tell us? Um, the study uh, tells us uh, that uh, 
both uh, by uh, adding uh, BTK uh, inhibitor uh, to upadacitinib because uh, both uh, have a different signaling uh, pathways, uh, did not make any difference in terms of efficacy compared to placebo uh, versus uh, upadacitinib. Uh, so this um, uh, therapy also has been investigated in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and again, uh, there was no uh, added benefits of uh, adding um, uh, L-subrutinib to upadacitinib. So uh, this uh, promising phase two trials uh, will advance um, to phase three trials. Uh, however, uh, um, it was still uh, uh, unclear whether um, the um, uh, company will uh, go ahead with upadacitinib alone or will test uh, both compounds uh, in, in a phase three uh, trial. Uh, I hope um, uh, you do find uh, this summary interesting uh, and it's something uh, uh, you know, to look out for and we have been getting uh, many, many compounds now in development in pipelines uh, and also have got in a phase two trials. So it's all exciting times uh, in the field of uh, systemic lupus uh, erythematosus therapy. Uh, so thank you for listening to me. Uh, you can follow me on my Twitter handle, Yusuf. Uh, and you can follow uh, Room Now uh, either through YouTube, uh, Twitter, uh, for and website for uh, coverage of uh, the Congress content. Bye bye. Hello everyone. My name is Yus Yusuf. Uh, I'm from Leeds. Uh, I'm reporting uh, for Room Now, uh, and we're reporting live from Milan, Italy. So it's a uh, nice uh, you know, to uh, gather here. Uh, to see our colleagues face to face and also to learn uh, something new, which is what we are here for. Uh, today, uh, I'm excited uh, uh, to uh, attend uh, several uh, abstract sessions. Uh, and there's one abstract that I would like uh, to uh, point out uh, because uh, it can uh, cause a little bit of um, uh, con controversy uh, or maybe something that we need to uh, discuss further in detail. So this uh, abstract, uh, the title, uh, the, the number is OP0053. Um, so this is a, a randomized control trial of baricitinib, uh, which is a JAK inhibitor uh, in uh, treating uh, active lupus nephritis. Uh, as uh, we all uh, uh, know uh, baricitinib uh, has been uh, investigated uh, in two uh, phase trial trials for non-renal lupus before, uh, whereas uh, the uh, BRAVE-1 randomized uh, control trial phase 3 were uh, positive. However, uh, uh, the similar design for BRAVE-2, uh, the, the outcome were negative. So therefore, um, the conclusion is uh, it's a bit inconclusive whether the treatment will be effective uh, for people with uh, non-renal lupus. So this uh, study looking at uh, active lupus nephritis, um, the uh, investigators described this uh, as phase three randomized control trials, uh, but this was only done uh, in a single center in Egypt. Um, so uh, in this uh, study, um, so the two comparators, uh, one uh, is the uh, baricitinib uh, plus uh, monthly placebo infusion, while the second group uh, is uh, IV cyclophosphamide um, monthly infusion uh, versus uh, uh, placebo uh, tablets. Uh, and uh, the primary uh, endpoint for this study uh, is a reduction of a proteinuria of more than uh, 50% uh, from, from baseline. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, in this study, um, the uh, follow-up was quite short, uh, up to uh, 24 weeks. Uh, the investigator uh, report uh, that uh, there are more uh, patients uh, in the baricitinib group uh, achieve uh, this protein reduction compared to the cyclophosphamide uh, at both uh, 12 and also 24 uh, weeks time point. Um, so uh, the, uh, in terms of the, the safety profile, so there was no uh, significant difference compared to what already, know, already known uh, uh, in terms of side effect uh, for baricitinib uh, because uh, the, the number is quite small. Um, uh, interestingly, they did not re uh, report uh, or observe any serious uh, infection event, uh, including herpes zoster, uh, and there was no cardiovascular event, and also there's no uh, venotromboembolism events. Um, so uh, the conclusion of the investigators uh, were the baricitinib uh, appeared to be uh, effective uh, for remission induction uh, in uh, people with active lupus nephritis, uh, which were defined uh, as class three and four, and also more than uh, 0.5 uh, milligram, uh, 0.5 milligram, 24-hour uh, protein, uh, and uh, plus minus uh, urinary cast. Uh, however. Um, in terms of uh, interpretation uh, of uh, these results, uh, it is a little bit, uh, we have to interpret it with caution. Uh, first and foremost, uh, in, uh, in terms of the composite endpoints, uh, the investigators only uh, used uh, reduction in proteinuria, whereas uh, these days, a uh, more composite index, uh, including proteinuria, and also the renal function, like you know, uh, whether there's any decline in the uh, EGFR or creatinine, uh, and also requirement of steroids. So these are more ideal uh, in more recent um, uh, clinical trial in lupus nephritis. Uh, other, uh, other thing as well, although it's been described and registered uh, as a phase three, um, I don't think personally this is phase three as it is a single cell so these uh, findings will need to be ex uh, ex uh, ex extrapolated uh, to other, uh, you know, uh, multi-centers so that the findings uh, can be uh, generalized. And certainly, uh, in longer uh, term uh, endpoint, uh, uh, well, follow-up uh, are needed. I think 24 weeks is quite short uh, for um, uh, management of uh, in a patient with lupus nephritis. So. Um, in terms of a conclusion here, uh, you know, rather than uh, um, we're quite convincing whether the treatment is effective in a the patient, there are actually more questions, you know, posed uh, uh, and more uncertainties uh, in terms of the uh, efficacy of baricitinib uh, in treating a patient with lupus, uh, and only uh, time will tell. Uh, and, and if there's a more further uh, bigger studies uh, are planned. Uh, and will be uh, eagerly uh, anticipated. Uh, I hope um, uh, you find it uh, useful. Um, so do uh, follow me on my Twitter, U6Yusuf, and follow us uh, room now uh, on uh, Twitter, YouTube, uh, website uh, for more coverage of uh, uh, our uh, Congress uh, in, in Milan. Uh, thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane and I'm reporting for Room Now at the ULAR Conference 2023 in Milan. Today was day one, lots of interesting abstracts, posters and presentations, but the one that caught my eye was the study of baricitinib in lupus nephritis, OP0053. 
Now, we know the baricitinib study was a negative study, and the TIC2, or really TIC jack 4 ducravacitinib was a positive study. Both had a primary outcome of SRI4. Uh, one was 57%, the other was 58%. But what killed baricitinib and made it a negative study was that the placebo response was 45%, and the result was non-significant. And with ducravacitinib, the placebo response was in the low 30s, and they got a positive result. So hence, baricitinib was not moved forward in the development for lupus. So this was interesting because it was an Egyptian study and quite a small study, but it was phase three. It was randomised, it was double blind, and they had an active comparator design where they looked at cyclophosphamide in a good strong dose monthly for six months and compared that with baricitinib, four milligrams for the same time. Now they've continued they've continued the study after 12 months. They're reporting the six-month study here. And the 12-month study will have renal biopsies. The six-month study did not. Now they in previous biopsies, there's lots of JAK expression in the kidney. They had an animal model where the JAK inhibitor was successful in lupus. So let's see what they did. They took grade three or grade four lupus nephritis patients who had more than 0.5 grams a day proteinuria with cellular casts and a sleet I2K that was elevated. Their primary outcome was change in proteinuria at week 12 and at week 24, and then they multiplicity controlled the secondary outcome measures, which included complements and double-stranded DNA and sleet I2K and changes from the baseline. So they had 30 patients in each arm, not a big study. 58% had grade three nephritis, the rest grade four. Though youngish, 32 years, they're all females. Their baseline sleet I2K was seven, so they had good active disease. And at 12 weeks, there was significant reduction in proteinuria, 70% for the baricitinib group, 43% for the cyclophosphamide group. Similarly, the secondary endpoints like C3 and sleet I2K was in favour of baricitinib over cyclophosphamide. They did exclude patients who were antiphospholipid antibody positive or had a history of VTE. And on the safety side, adverse events were comparable, 48 and 46%. Two patients on baricitinib had a serious adverse event that led to discontinuation, and one patient on cyclophosphamide had a similar serious adverse event that led to discontinuation, and this was a serious infection and a zoster. So they were able to show in a comparator trial, significant benefit of baricitinib compared to cyclophosphamide. I should have added that all patients started with methylpred and they had a forced steroid reduction over a number of weeks down to five milligrams a day. Uh, and um, a very interesting result, hypothesis generating needs to be repeated bigger numbers in other countries and longer-term follow-up, but a clue 
that Jack 1-2 inhibition with baricitinib 4 milligrams might be a, a valuable treatment for lupus nephritis in these patients who had active disease when you compare it in an active comparator, not a powered for head-to-head, with intravenous monthly cyclophosphamide. A very interesting study. Hope you enjoyed that and look forward to reporting more interesting studies from ULA 2023 for Room Now in beautiful Milan. Thanks a lot.